you're a guest, uh, we are embarking uh, throughout the summer on a look at uh, those books or letters in the New Testament that have only one chapter. In fact, you probably don't need to even identify them by chapter. You could just see Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, Jude. Those books which we, um, I'm going to say very often we may flip by those while we're searching for some other book like Hebrews or James or something a bit more substantial, but as you're flipping, you occasionally see, oh, Philemon, and then you pass by. It's not unlike, I don't think, those uh, little signposts that you see along the Trans-Canada Highway, especially as you're driving across Saskatchewan, and they identify a little prairie town, and uh, as you get close, there's this little signpost and an arrow and a dirt road. But you seldom, if ever, travel down that dirt road. You seldom, if ever, make a choice to turn off the highway because you're probably headed to, you know, Swift Current or Regina or, in our case, usually it's Winnipeg. And so you breeze by them. And... Uh, so I think that's what often happens to books like Philemon. Uh, we, we don't stop there very long to take a look at what's there. And This morning, um, I want to take a one Sunday look at this letter. Um, it's a letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. It contains, I think, about 25 verses. Um, I think your average grade six student could probably read the entire letter in about four minutes. Um, it is a very personal letter. You know, many of Paul's writings have to do with doctrine and they can be quite, you might say, heavy. The letter to Philemon is part of a very human story. And it's Paul writing to Philemon, who is a fellow worker within the church of God. And Paul is writing into a human relationship that has the potential to go sideways, to end badly. All three people, although there are more than three people identified in this letter, the three key people all know each other. And they are all children of God. And it's a letter where Paul, I think, reinforces several things. One is that we are within the church of God called to love and to forgive one another. That needs to be a trademark of who we are as a church that we are willing to love and forgive one another. Um, Secondly, I think the church throughout the New Testament is reminded by Paul to guard the unity and the oneness that our faith calls us to exercise. And so I think in this letter, um, there's a conversation that Paul has about guarding that oneness that we share in Christ, regardless of our, let's say, position outside the church. 
I think that the church is called to demonstrate a kind of unity and oneness that the world would love to know. That regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of social status, God calls us to love one another as brothers and sisters, as equal heirs within the kingdom of God. That the gospel overrides all those distinctions that our world kind of likes to use to set us apart. In the church, we are to be one. In a world where social justice issues continually and maybe more increasingly are getting headlines, the latest one in Canada would be the call for reconciliation with regards to our country's treatment of First Nations children and families. The church is actually called to be a place where social justice is in evidence. I think it's something that as a church we need to consciously work at. But if we get it right, I believe that the church can display what God calls it to be. And it is something remarkable within our world. So Paul reminds Philemon and the church that slaves who accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and masters who accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ within the context of the church were brothers and sisters. They were to be, how shall I say, treated, welcomed, embraced as equals within the church. Thirdly, I think there exists within this letter, I'm going to say a deep spiritual truth about the relationship between masters and slaves. I mean, I generally emphasize the truth that the Bible talks about us as brothers and sisters within the church, that God refers to us as his family and his children. But there is a truth, I think, when we talk about our relationship to God that is probably more powerfully represented in slave-master-servant-master language. It's interesting that that's the language Paul and other New Testament writers often use to describe their own heart before God. They would call themselves a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And that role was for them the highest calling in their life. To obediently follow the example of Jesus and to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. There are those who take issue. Usually these are people outside the church. But there are those who take issue with the fact that Paul did not speak out against slavery or condemn slavery. But I think we, we need to acknowledge the historical reality of first century Rome and to impose kind of a 21st century lens on first century Rome, I think is simplistic. I think it's somewhat naive and I think it is unfair. In first century Rome, it is said that up to a third of the population were slaves. 
Many others who were Roman citizens were at one time slaves. So it was woven into the fabric of how the world was at that time. I think it's also interesting that Jesus often referred to slave, master, servant, master language, and he used it to demonstrate how the kingdom of God is different from the kingdoms of this world, that we are called not only to serve God, we are called to serve one another. Serving one another, I think, within a Creekside context is incredibly evident every Sunday. That in quiet, sometimes invisible ways, we choose to serve one another. Now, Paul did on occasion address the slave-master relationship. But he always stressed how that role within the context of a child of God changes that role not only in the workplace, but even more dramatically how that changes that role within the context of the church. In the workplace, he might say your role as slave and master is still going to exist. In the church, your brothers and sisters... Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, this, again, another letter written by Paul, where he says, slaves, and he's talking to Christian slaves, slaves who had become children of God. He says, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are looking. As slaves of Christ... That's a key phrase this Sunday morning. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free masters. Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember You both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Love that. Love that verse. We all have the same master in heaven, and he plays no favorites. I think we need to embrace this letter in the context that it's written, in the historical context that it's written, in order, I think, to fully understand what Paul is talking about. In this letter, we have Paul... Great apostle. We have a runaway slave named Onesimus. And we have a slave owner, Philemon, who Paul knows well. And Paul acknowledges that Philemon is a fellow worker in the church of God. It even appears that the church that Philemon is part of probably met in Philemon's house. Exactly how this runaway slave Onesimus meets Paul or runs into Paul is not identified in the book, but we know that in that process, Onesimus becomes a child of God. That Onesimus was spiritually 
reborn, I want to say likely through the testimony of Paul, and Paul actually refers to him as his child. And Paul says that Onesimus has become incredibly valuable to him while he's in prison. Paul spends much of his life very restricted. And so I'm thinking Onesimus maybe played an incredibly valuable role in helping Paul and maybe even helping the church in Rome in very practical ways. Problem is that Onesimus rightly belongs to Philemon. Paul knows that, and so does Onesimus. So in this letter, Paul makes it clear that he is returning Onesimus back to Philemon. In fact, Onesimus is carrying the letter. There's no question that Onesimus would have good reason to be afraid. He would be 100% aware of the harsh and often brutal treatment that awaited runaway slaves. I took this quote, I forget exactly where it was. Uh, there are many similar type quotes if you want to look at how were slaves treated in first century Rome. Um, incredibly harsh. No injury or punishment inflicted by an owner was a crime. It was not illegal to kill a mere slave. They were not perceived as people. They were perceived as commodities. When property or goods were sold, which included slaves, there were no rules preventing the splitting of a husband and wife, parents and children, brothers and sisters. And when punishment, and when punished for any capital offense, they were commonly crucified. And I want to return to that thought later. Onesimus knew this. And he may well have contacted Paul asking for his advocacy on his behalf, saying, Paul, I'm afraid of what might happen if you return me. Can you write a letter on my behalf? It's also interesting that this letter, although it's primarily to Philemon, Paul addresses other church leaders uh, and so I think the church is kind of a secondary recipient of this letter. They would kind of know what's going on. And if Paul is holding Philemon accountable for how he's going to receive Onesimus, I think he is also holding the church accountable. And Paul is reminding Philemon that Onesimus is returning. Not as a runaway slave, but as a Christian brother. And in a situation where prevailing culture would expect judgment and punishment, Paul challenges Philemon and the church to extend love and forgiveness. To let love be the defining attitudes of our lives and within our church. One of the things that complicates this story a little bit is that it's very possible that Onesimus may have stolen something from Philemon. Now, whether he ran because he had stolen something or whether he stole something and ran or whether he stole anything at all is not 100% clear. But it's interesting that Paul says to him, 
If, in fact, Onesimus has taken something, stolen something of value from you, I will repay that for Onesimus. And it kind of parallels the story of the Good Samaritan who, when he passed by the man who was beaten, not only cared for him there, but said, if there are any added or unexpected costs, I will cover them. And it's kind of like Paul is saying that to Philemon. I will cover those things that Onesimus owes you, uh, even though you might say technically he should not be told to do so. It's not the fact that he has to do so. He chooses to do so. And I thought that it's an indication that at times it's okay, let's say, to reach into our wallets to take care of an issue that we might say is technically not ours. There's a couple of verses, and I'm going to read the chapter in a minute, where Paul pulls out what I would call his apostolic authority card. And then he quickly puts it back in his pocket and says, Philemon, I believe you're going to do the right thing. I want to read that, that letter. And I'm going to read uh, all of it. it uh, it's not that long. I think it's uh, up on the screen. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always give thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And so here, the real purpose of the letter begins. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old I, sorry, it is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son. Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, as a runaway slave, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me, and I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason, I'm going to talk about this, these two verses. They kind of jumped out at me um, one day when I was thinking about this letter. 
Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very clear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would have welcomed me. If he has done, any, done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, uh, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. I, I think it's interesting that Paul always expects to be released. Um, one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. One of the things that stood out to me, as I said, when I was reading that, is Paul's reference to what I'm going to call the timing and hand of God in life itself. That God is not limited by what we might call the circumstances of life. That when the circumstances of life do not unfold as we would hope, that does not mean that God is distant or that God is inactive. For, for Philemon, losing Onesimus as a worker, as a slave, would have been a bad news story. Even more so if he had stolen something from him. Yet Paul challenges Philemon to see that God has turned this into good. And I think that when life does not serve us the menu that we thought we had ordered, God can take what we perceive, God can take what we actually experience as negative and use it for his honor and for his glory. That God is active in the circumstances of life. I want to say few of us ask for trials, pain, suffering. Yet often those times in our life serve to define and refine our relationship with God. Last week, Gordon Evans, when he shared uh, about his work in Niger and some of the attacks on the Christian church by uh, Boko Haram, he gave incredible examples of how something so negative was turned into a powerful witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ in that country. Paul admits that as a runaway slave, Onesimus had little or no value to either of them, but as a brother in Christ, he has great value. He had already proved that to Paul, likely in very practical ways, and he's saying, Philemon, he can do the same thing for you. He can do the same thing for your church. And it's a powerful and amazing story about the redemptive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God takes runaways, draws them to himself, and adopts them as children. That those who were once far away can be brought near 
through the cross of Christ. And Paul is reminding Philemon that Onesimus is not who he once was. He left you a criminal. He returns to you as a brother in Christ. Will you treat him as such? Will you love and forgive So if you ask, why is this rather personal letter and personal story included in the Bible, I want to say I see two very powerful messages. The first is to the church, and that is that we are to love, we are to forgive, we are to guard the unity, the oneness that we share in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think there's a powerful message to us as individuals. That to a certain extent, we are all a little bit like Onesimus. That even as children, even as children of God, we at times drift, sometimes willfully, sometimes unintentionally, we drift from God. Jesus made reference to the shepherd who leaves the 99 who are safely in the fold, and he goes to seek for the one that is missing. He goes to seek for the one who has wandered off, and at times in life that may have been me, at times in life that may have been you. The prodigal son was lured by the temptations that this world offers, and the world offers a lot of them. And they enticed the prodigal son, yet when he returned a broken and humbled man, he said, Dad, just treat me. As you treat one of your servants. And his dad threw his arms around him and said, I embrace you as my son. I want to say that's how God views you and me. And what's so amazing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that while the punishment for a runaway slave was often crucifixion, it is our master who was willing to be crucified for us. That our master, Jesus, instead of condemning us, has forgiven us and welcomed us not as a slave, but as his child and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And Paul challenges Philemon, treat Onesimus the way Christ has treated you. In closing, and I mentioned this earlier, Paul and the other apostles often refer to themselves as bondservants, sometimes in certain translations as slaves of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is a reference to the Old Testament, and I think it's in Deuteronomy, where there were slaves who chose to stay with their masters rather than to leave and go free. And slaves who made that decision would have their ear pierced to signify that they had chosen to stay and serve their master. It would have been a powerful statement by those people that life with their master was better than life apart from him. This morning I want to say Jesus doesn't ask us for any signs, any tattoos, any piercings, any religious trappings. But he does ask us, I think, to consider our heart and our mind and our soul. Are we living lives that say, I am choosing to follow my master, 
Jesus because he is such a good master. He offers me more than this world could ever offer. He offers me something this world cannot offer. That Jesus took me a runaway and made me his son. And one day when Jesus returns, and I think I speak for all of us as children of God, we want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Am I willing to have that perspective on my life that I am a servant of Jesus Christ? Jesus is my master. Am I publicly willing to declare that I serve Jesus and I serve his church? I think that's one of the challenges that's within this letter, this personal story. And I pray that God would speak that truth into our heart and lives, that the punishment deserved for us was taken by Jesus. Jesus. 